Bibles now to Genesis chapter 10. The whole of Genesis chapter 10 through the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 11 form one literary unit. So we'll consider Genesis 10 and then Genesis 11, 1 through 9 together this morning. And if you've read ahead in Genesis, and I hope you have, you're probably relieved to hear that. As Genesis 10, Genesis chapter 10 is essentially a roster of the nations that develop from the offspring of Noah. Uh, to go over that list name by name would be rather tedious, and I'm afraid it would be somewhat unfruitful. Uh, that's really not why that list is there. There is a purpose for it being there, but not necessarily to go over the list name by name. It's true, very true, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That is very true. I would be the last to deny that. But sometimes to fully appreciate the prophet from a portion of Scripture, it's helpful to take on a section or a unit as a whole. And that's what we will do this morning. But there's a point to all of this, especially chapter 10, that Moses is making, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And in summary, this is the point. There is an essential unity within the human race, as we're all descended from one man, Noah. Presently, there may not be a functional unity within the human race. There is an essential unity. We're all human beings. There may not be a functional unity, but there is an essential unity, meaning, at least on one level, the human race is one big family. But as Genesis continues to unfold, we'll find that functional unity is not present among humanity. As some, over the course of history, have made a volitional choice to submit to God and therefore remain in His place of blessing, and others have made a volitional choice to rebel against Him and to be associated with sin and cursing or discipline and cursing. It does seem to be, once more, one of those either-or circumstances. Either we submit to God, or we rebel against God. Either we obey Him and we're associated with His blessing, or we choose, we choose willingly choose to disobey Him and we're associated with cursing. It does seem to be either-or. Either we turn to God, or we will rebel against Him. We learned last week, in the last part of chapter 9, that God will bless those who act with moral purity, but discipline those who engage in moral degeneracy. And the motif of that message actually runs throughout the course of Genesis from beginning to end. The motif of blessing versus cursing. I don't know about you, but I want to be happy. I want to be content. But I need to learn in order to be content. I need to live within the boundaries that God has set for me. And it seems as though all members of the human race believe that happiness, true contentment, lies just outside of the boundaries that God set. Just, just, just beyond the rules that he set up for us. That's where true happiness really must lie. And that really betrays a faulty view of God. It betrays the view of God that's just some sort of cosmic puppeteer that's up in the sky doing everything he can on a 24-hour basis, seven days a week, to make life difficult for us. And that's not true at all. Just like you didn't set the rules for your children not to play in the street when they were younger because you hated them. 
you set the rules for them because you knew if they played in the street with reckless abandon, that sooner or later somebody was going to run over them and their joy wouldn't be what they wanted it to be. But far too often as children we think, well, if my parents said I don't, I'm not supposed to be out in the street, that must be where happiness lies. And we tend in our old sin natures to want to go exactly to the place where we're not supposed to be, where that, that, that which is an authority over us says, don't do that. Well, listen, just like your parents had your best interests in mind when they told you don't go play in that busy street, they, didn't, they weren't mean for doing that. They loved you by doing that. In that same way, God has your best interests in mind where he sets the boundaries for human behavior. And it's really pretty simple. We'll see it today in today's passage. If we live within those boundaries, we're going to be happy and content. If we step outside those boundaries... We are not going to be happy or content. The very thing that we're seeking by stepping outside the boundaries will elude us because that's not the way God works. Now, here's the bottom line. Do you trust God, the eternal creator of the universe, the one who sent his son to die for you as, as a substitute when you were his enemy? Do you trust that God to have your best interest in mind? Do you trust him enough to obey him? Now, we all want happiness. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but anybody that wouldn't raise their hand, we probably need to get you some counseling. You see, all of, let's just admit it. All of us want to be content. I do, too. I want to be happy. I want to be fulfilled. And if I'm to do that, and if you're to do that, the bottom line is this. We have to do it God's way. That's the bottom line. And I've got to learn to trust God enough to know that his way is going to provide for my contentment and my happiness. And if I step outside of the boundaries that he placed upon me, no matter what area they are. We talked about last time, that the sexual boundaries that God had placed upon mankind. Sex is a beautiful and a wonderful and a great thing, provided it's practiced within the boundaries that God set up. You step outside those boundaries and it becomes something that's very painful. The very thing that you think is going to bring you happiness ends up bringing you pain if you participate in it outside of the boundaries that God set up. The problem's not with sex. God invented sex. The problem is participating in this great invention of God outside of the boundaries that he set up. God set up certain boundaries for Christians with regard to behavior within society. We're, obe we're to obey the laws of the land. We're, we're not to cheat on our taxes. And we may think, well, listen, if I, if I did this... I would have just a little bit more money than I have right now. I, I could save $600 on my taxes if I would do this. Now, I know it's shady. My conscience is not really giving me any comfort about, about that. But there would be $600 coming to me. And I'll tie 10% of it to the church. I promise I really will. And we think it's going to make us happy. Guess what? You will, you will achieve no true happiness. None whatsoever when you, when you gain that money by stepping outside the boundaries that God has set up for us. Do you see the point? And that point is going to be made again here in Genesis chapters 10 and then the first verses of chapter 11. So last week we see this message in summary, in summary form. God is going to bless those who act with moral decency, with moral purity, but he'll discipline those who engage in moral depravity or moral degeneracy. Now that, that's one area. But the principle overflows into all areas of life, all areas of living. Chapters, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, uh, doesn't necessarily follow chrono chronologically from chapter 10. Uh, chapter 10 is a summary of, of all the, the, the offspring of Noah and how the, the nations came to be. 
But the first nine verses of chapter 11 explain to us why the peoples were dispersed and why they're not gathered into one particular location. I talked about functional unity and essential unity a moment ago. Again, essential unity in the human race meaning we're all human beings. We all have value before God because we're all created in his image. And in that sense, every human being on this planet is my brother or sister. But there's also a functional unity. That's essential unity. There's also a functional unity meaning that we're all functioning in the same way. Now, we don't do that. No, I mean, that's, that's very, very clear. There wouldn't be wars. There wouldn't be fights out in the street. There wouldn't be murders if we were all functioning with a functional unity. But it appears as though, it appears as though early on, there was both an essential unity and a functional unity within humanity. But the problem was, the functional unity revolved around a common conviction to rebel against the Creator. See, that's not the functional unity God desires. He would like a functional unity where, where his, his creatures worship Him together, where we submit to Him together. And that will be that way someday. In the millennium it will be that way. In the millennial kingdom, at least by and large, it will be that way. But the, functional and the essential and functional unity at the beginning turned out to be a negative. In other words, they were unified. But they're unified in their rebellion against God not in their submission to God. So you know when you see this that God is going to have to act. Now, he's just got through promising in chapter 9 he's not going to destroy the world again. So the actions that he, take, that he takes in today's passage will seem rather tame, in fact, compared to what he did in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. But he does act because he's a gracious and loving God and he, he does have our best interests in mind. You know, there was times when I, when I was growing up that that, um, that dad would take the belt off. And he'd say, lean over that couch. And he wasn't saying we saw him take a nap when we were leaning over the couch. It meant, that, it meant that there was some discipline that was fixing to come from the hand of authority. Now, he didn't do that because he, he didn't love me. He, he did it because he did love me, and he didn't want that behavior to continue. And God's going to do that with the human race as well. Now, in Genesis chapters 6 through 9, he took off more than a belt. He, de he destroyed every living thing besides Noah and his family and those, the, the, the beings that were, uh, the uh, animals that were on the ark. Now, today, God is, is, is going to be more of a belt that he's taken off. There's going to be a few swats to get humanity's attention and to disperse them. I have no doubt that even though there was a functional unity of rebellion against God in, that we see uh, after the flood, I have no doubt that there were individual pockets of worshipers of Yahweh, although they're just not mentioned here in this passage. By and large, there was a by and large, there was a functional unity in the human race, and that functional unity centered around rebellion. So we observe in the first part of chapter 11, God acting graciously to break up this rebellious coalition. And this is grace on God's part. It's a wonderful thing on his part to do that. He'll shatter the unity of rebellion so that there's a possibility that at some point in time, human beings may be blessed. He's got to shatter this rebellious coalition. At this point, in Genesis chapter 10 through the first, 11 verse, through the first 9 verses of chapter 11, the future of humanity looks bleak all over again. It looks very much like they didn't get the point of the flood. 
Humans are hard-headed. We just didn't get the point after the flood, at least as the essential unity of human beings. And so God is going to interact. Even though things look bleak, though, we can't help but remember the promise that God made back in Genesis 3.15. Remember that, that the seed of the woman would ultimately conquer the seed of the serpent? The seed of the woman who would ultimately be good will conquer the seed of the serpent who is ultimately evil. There is a promise. There is a future for mankind. But in Genesis chapter 10, in the first nine verses of 11, it doesn't look like it. At least not at first. There's a functional unity of rebellion. In this section, we find ourselves at another low point in the early outworking of human history. But this narrative, oh, this, this narrative is sweet. Because it prepares us for the introduction of a man named Abram, also known as Abraham, in the next chapter. It's there that the theme of obedience and blessing will again begin to shine through the words of the text. Read with me. I won't attempt a reading of of chapter 10. I would invite you to do that on your own, though, and read through these uh, names and places. But in chapter 11, now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do, and now nothing will be, nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore the name was called Babel or Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. What is reported here echoes the efforts of Adam and Eve after the fall to achieve power and independence and blessing apart from God. Adam and Eve used vegetation to cover their nakedness that was a result of the fall, the sin and the fall. This present generation will build a city and a tower a city and a tower, in order to achieve independence from God, to achieve power independently of God. Either way, either way, whether it's Adam and Eve using fig leaves to cover themselves, or this generation building a city and a tower to prove that they don't need God, either way, they are attempting to gain blessing apart from submission to God. And that's not going to work. Human endeavors to achieve the blessing of God apart from submission to God will always end up in failure. Always. 100% of the time. And that's what this passage is really all about. So many people today, everybody today wants happiness, but so many want happiness on their own terms. They want happiness apart from submission to the Creator, and it doesn't work that way. 
God says, do it my way, and I'll bless you. Man says, I want to bless life, but I'll have it my way. Thank you very much. Our Creator deeply desires, deeply desires to bless His children, but He cannot, because of His infinite perfection, He cannot bless rebellion against Himself. Any more than you can bless rebellion when your children rebel against you. It is not good parenting to bless rebellion. It's not in the child's best interest to reward bad behavior. It may be easier for you as a parent just to let it go, but it's not in that child's best interest just to let it go. In this passage that I just read, the problem is not so much the building of a tower. Now, that's what we focus upon. It's not so much the building of a tower. It's not so much even the building of the city. The problem was the attempt to live in one place in rebellion against the command of God that was given back in chapter 9, verse 1, I refresh your memory, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, this is post-flood, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see, God gave them the command. They were supposed to be fruitful and multiply. They got that part. It seems like humanity never has a problem with that part. But they missed the second part, and that was to scatter over the face of the earth. They said, no, we're not going to do that. They didn't think it was in their best interest to do that. And that's reflective of a general rebellion against God. There's their functional unity. They were unified in their rebellion. We may say, well, why does God want them scattered? That's not my business. God said to scatter. He said to fill the whole earth. And you can't overthink it. And so what these people do is they say, well, you know what? I know that's what God said, but. Now, that's a dangerous sentence. Oh, my friends, that's a dangerous sentence. If you're going to do something, don't rationalize it by the first part of that sentence. Anything that follows the but there is going to get you in big trouble. Don't say, I know what God said, but. I know what God said, and I'm going to do it. But don't say, I know what God said, but. That sets you up in the position of God, and that's not what you want. I'm... Sure. So this whole episode is a reflective of a general rebellion against God. God says, do this. They say, I don't think that's in our best interests. I can almost see how they think that. They think this is a kind of a tough world out there, maybe a dangerous world. There's animals out there who may want to get us. I think we would be better, they said. We think it would be better to build a city and stay in one place. I know that's what God said to scatter, but we're going to do this. You see, the rebellion... And it seems like a subtle rebellion, but it's rebellion nonetheless. So they build a city. And then they decide to build a tower to make matters worse. They're going to build a monument. They're going to build a monument to their own rebellion against God. You know, that's what people do sometimes. The worse things get, the worse the rebellion seems to be. Um, when folks decide to rebel against God, it seems to go in stages. At least this is just my observation. First, when people are in open rebellion against God, and, and that happens uh, a, a good deal, when people are in open rebellion against God, they tend to keep it to themselves. Their conscience is convicting them. They don't want to tell their friends they're in open rebellion against God because it may make them look bad. And then there's a second stage, though. The, the shame tends to go away after a time. And then they tend to find others that are in the same form of rebellion as they themselves are in. And the old birds of a feather fought together thing starts to come into play. 
And I suppose the thinking is that there's some sort of comfort in numbers there, some consolation in knowing that others are engaged in the same rebellion against God that you are. So they, they tend to congregate, people tend to congregate together with those that are in the same form of rebellion. But finally, oh, finally, there comes celebration of that rebellion. Group of re- groups of rebels proudly come out of the closet, so to speak, and I'm, only, I'm speaking in general of all rebellion against God, and openly celebrate their degeneracy. I don't know if this has ever been more illustrated in American culture than last November 22nd at the AMA Music Awards. Not the AMA, we're not talking about the American Medical Association, it's American Music Association Awards. When the guy that I think finished second on the American Idol thing performed. And it was probably, arguably, at least one of the most degenerate performances that was ever given on non-cable television. It was, it was so bad that even the executives at ABC blushed and were embarrassed by it. But what this was, was before the whole world, a celebration of this man's, if you'll excuse me, this man's degeneracy. And he may be a great performer, but he took degeneracy to another level at that AMA Music Awards performance. And it was reflective of the celebration of degeneracy. This man has gone a long way past, and I pray for his salvation, I really do, but this man has gone a long way past being ashamed by his behavior, a long, a long way past just congregating with others that have the same behavior. He began to celebrate this behavior. Rabbi Zacharias said one time, you can tell a lot about a culture by what makes it laugh and by what makes it cry. And you can also tell a lot about a culture by what that culture celebrates. Our culture as a whole seems to be unified today in celebrating rebellion against God and not submission to God. We should celebrate submission to God. But our heroes in this culture today are not those who necessarily submit to God. Although I see the tide changing just a slight bit. Even with these, the, the, the people in the Super Bowl, I saw an incredible testimony this week from Drew Bees, the, the quarterback for the New Orleans Saints. Very strong Christian man. It was, it was nice to see that. And although the networks pull back and they don't show it, after every NFL game, both teams get together. The Christians on both teams get together. Now they kneel and they pray in the middle of the field. Now, the networks refuse to show that because they're not going to celebrate submission to God, but they'll celebrate rebellion against God. And I'm not saying celebrations in the end zone are rebellions against God, but they come close sometimes. (laughs) Randy Moss came very close a few times, those who follow the NFL. So we, we have here a celebration of what's going on and not being ashamed of what's going on. Verse 1, now the whole earth use the same language and the same words. Well, that's, there's nothing wrong so far, because that's the way God designed it. And then verse 2, And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. If, if I was to draw your attention back to chapter 10, verse 10, it, it, we see what some of the cities are on this plain. And the beginning of this kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. So we know that at least eventually there will be four cities on this plain. All we can really say with certainty is that this is east of where they landed, east of where they were at the flood. It's also reminiscent of when Adam and Eve go out from the garden, they go east. Verse 4, though. Well, let me mention something about verse 3. Verse 3 tells us the pains that they take in making this city. 
and these were not the methods that Israelites normally employed. So Moses, when he writes this, is telling them that they're taking very much care. He's giving them a little cultural information right from the beginning. He's telling them they took a lot of pains to make sure that this tower that they were going to build and the city that they're going to build is built to last. I love that. If, if we were in the, on the Gulf Coast, we would say this city is going to be hurricane-proof because they're going to build it right. Well, let's see if it's going to last or not. Now, verse 4 really is one of the keys to understanding what's going on here in this passage. Let me just read this again. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And, and the result of doing that, and let us make for ourselves a name. They wanted a reputation. Now, they're going to build a tower that reaches up into the skies. Now, they knew, in their, even in their pagan theology, they knew that the, the skies represented where God lives. So they're going to build this monument to themselves and to their own rebellion, whether consciously or subconsciously. They're building this monument to themselves up to the place where God lives. And they're going to build it in such a way that it's going to last. And it's going to be a monument to their human achievement. But watch. The human achievement is taking place outside of the boundaries that God had made for them. So we know, if, if, if we've learned anything from Genesis so far, we can, we can know what's going to happen without reading the rest of the passage. It's not going to work. Because God is not going to bless rebellion. It won't last. Now, sometimes it lasts longer than we think it should. Even the prophets used to say, oh, Lord, how long? How long are you going to let this go on? So it may last longer than we think it should, but there was a time. 722 B.C. did come when the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed. 586 B.C. came when the southern kingdom was destroyed. So it happened. I love the message of Habakkuk. Habakkuk says, oh, Lord, how long are you going to let this people live in degeneracy? And the Lord says, well, not long. I'm fixing to bring this Babylonian kingdom up to destroy you. And Habakkuk says, well, that's not exactly what I had in mind. I appreciate you listening to me, but it's not exactly what I had in mind. So verse 4 tells us that their motivation is essentially hubris or pride. They were arrogant. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And they wanted to avoid being scattered over the whole face of the earth. Now, we're going to see at the end, they're going to get a name. It's going to be Babel or Babel. That's where we get the term Babylon from. They're going to get that name. It's not the one they wanted. They're going to get one. They're also going to be, going to be scattered exactly the opposite of what they had wanted. You know, in a sense, these folks are following the pattern of Satan. And it happens over and over and over again. It happens every day. The pattern of Satan is, I will be like the Most High God. And these people are saying, I'm going to build a tower against God's orders. They knew they were supposed to scatter. They knew they were supposed to populate the whole earth. But I'm going to rebel against God, and I'm going to build a monument to it. And let's just shake our fist at God and see if he does anything about it. Don't. Don't do that. It's not a wise idea. So again, we see in verse 4, they wanted to make a name, and they wanted to avoid being scattered. Now this is in direct violation of Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. So there's no question here that they are being rebellious against God. Now, verse 5 actually offers a little comic relief in the middle of a very serious passage. Because, you see, the, the, you, the picture that God is, is portraying here is you've got these little bitty tiny human beings that are building this monument to their own rebellion that they think is going to really be uh, intimidating to God as they shake their fist at God. And the text portrays God as kind of looking over the clouds like this. What are they doing down there? 
Is that a tower they're trying to build? They're trying to get all the way up here? That, that is, so it's a, it's a bit of comic relief, or, or a little bit of irony in verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city. So it's all like he's walking. He's not on their level. Do you see that? God is not on our level. He had to condescend to come down and look at this. Of course, he's omnipresent. He, he knew what was going on. But, but I want you to see the imagery that Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is putting here. This isn't a fair fight. There's no contest here. God's got to look down to see what they're doing. He's got to condescend to see what they're doing. So there's a little bit of comic relief here in verse 5 in a very serious situation. But look at verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do. Now, God's not learning anything here. We're, we are, this is expressed through Moses so we can see what's on God's mind. With God, all knowledge is simultaneous. He doesn't ever learn anything. If I was to say that to you, it would be an insult. But with God, it's the truth. He's never learned anything because he's always known everything that's knowable. So this is what they begin to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Now this is a, a little bit of a challenging sentence. It, this is not one of those, I can do all things through Christ. That's not one of these things. It's not meaning that if I don't go down and destroy that tower, that they will get to heaven and they will become gods, little g. He's not intimidated by that. Actually, it, it could read, which they purpose to do will be withheld from them. What this means is that they are in harmony with regard to their rebellion and there won't be any depths to which they cannot sink. If we don't stop this now, and notice the plural here, it's kind of like we had when in the first part of Genesis. Um, this doesn't prove the Trinity, by the way. I wouldn't use these, these as proof text, but they add to it. They help supplement and validate it. But God is saying that they need to go down and do something about this. In verse 7, come, let us go down there and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. This is grace on God's part. He's not going to allow this settlement to continue and to grow and to thrive. It's not in their best interests. Because if they attempt to achieve blessing aside from submission to God, it's not going to happen. Not now, not ever. Not in the entire history of the universe will it ever happen that you will achieve true contentment apart from submission to God. Oh, you may achieve something that you think is contentment, something that is a counterfeit contentment. People do that with drugs, don't they? People do that with alcohol, don't they? they? They drink this or they take these pills and they think that they're going to get some form of happiness that is really not theirs. It's a shadow happiness. It's, it's a counterfeit happiness. It's not a reality at all. And, it, and the, happiness, the happiness that you think you, you are, you are achieving that is really a counterfeit happiness is, is almost the same effect as, as one who imbibes too much alcohol and has a terrible hangover the next day. And, and the person thinks, why in the world did I do that? Was the pleasure that I got the night before worth the pain that I'm going through today? And I would say most often people would say, no, it's not. So God is going to, in, in grace, he's going to scatter this city. And that's what we see happening in verses 7 through 9, and when they scatter them, they stop building the city. In verse 9, we see almost a summary statement, a bookend from what we saw in verse 1. Therefore, its name was called Babel, or Babel if you prefer. They see they wanted a name for themselves, and the name that they got was not exactly what they wanted. The use of this term Babel is a play on words in Hebrew. Every time. 
a Hebrew speaker would read this passage or hear of this story, uh, they'd, re- they'd be reminded of the fact that God confused their language. It sounds just like the Hebrew word for confusion. So those who were in rebellion against God didn't get as far as they wanted. They didn't achieve the end that they wanted. And my friends, this is the message that we take from this passage. And we all need to take it, and we all need to take it seriously. For if, for if we really want to achieve contentment, and I do, I'll be the first to admit, I want contentment in my life. That contentment will never be found outside of the boundaries that God has set up for me for my behavior. It hasn't changed since the days of Moses when he summarized the Jews' responsibility to live within the confines of the Mosaic Law. Now, that was the behavior he set up for them. I'm not saying we're under the Mosaic Law. But at at the end of Moses' life, he puts it really simple. If, If you obey me, God says, I'll bless you. And if you disobey me, I'll curse you. It's that simple. And you know what? That principle still applies today. God says, if you obey me, I'm going to bless you. Even if it doesn't make sense to you at the time. Being scattered may not have made sense to these people. But it was God's plan. And we've got to, one of these days, and I hope it's sooner rather than later, we all need to come to the realization that God is smarter than we are, he's more powerful than we are, and he loves you. He loves you more than anyone ever has or could. And on top of it, he's sovereign. And if we'll obey him, we will achieve true happiness. Human endeavors to achieve the blessing of God apart from submission to God will always end in failure. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. It's a penetrating message. It's a penetrating thought. And all of us have been tempted from time to time to step outside the boundaries that you've set up for us. Help us not to do that. Help us to trust you enough to where we, to where we act consistently with our faith in you and we realize that you really do love us and you have our best interest in mind and that the boundaries you've set up are for our own good and that true happiness lies within those. Help us in the days to come to live consistently with this message from Genesis chapter 10 and 11. Father, we ask now as we go from this place that you would dismiss us with the riches of thy grace and peace and mercy upon us. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.